Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Kobe and I chat with Shu Mo Chu, the co-founder of Manta Network. We discuss the origin story of the project, how they aim to bring privacy to Web3, the unique accessibility that being a Polkadot parachain enables, the work they do on building ZK tooling and libraries for the general ZK community, their plans for a multi-asset shielded pool, a quick look into the future they have planned for the project, and more. But before we start in, I want to highlight a new video series we have launched this summer called the ZK Whiteboard Sessions. It's produced by ZK Hack, as well as the ZK crew from Polygon. In it, hosts Bobbin and Brendan interview top experts in the ZK space and explore the most important concepts and building blocks in ZK. I'll add a link to this in the show notes. It's definitely a great resource to check out. Now I want to invite Tanya to share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Anoma. Anoma is a set of protocols that enable self-sovereign coordination. Their unique architecture facilitates the simplest forms of economic coordination, such as two parties transferring an asset to each other as well as more sophisticated ones like an asset-agnostic bartering system involving multiple parties without direct coincidence of wants, or even more complex ones such as N-Party, collective commitments to solve multipolar traps, where an interaction can be performed with an adjustable zero-knowledge privacy. Anoma's first fractal instance, Namada, is planned for later in 2022, and it focuses on enabling shielded transfers for any assets with a few-second transaction latency and near-zero fees, Visit anoma.net for more information. So thanks again, Anoma. Now here is Anna and Kobe's interview with Manta Network. Today we are here with Shumo Chu, co-founder of Manta Network. Welcome to the show, Shumo. Very happy to be in the show. I'm a big fan of this ZK podcast myself and happy to be here. Cool. As my co-host for today, I've brought back Kobe. Welcome to the show again, Kobe. Hello, glad to be here. <laughs> All right. So Shumo, let's jump in. I think it would be great for us to learn a little bit about you. What were you doing before Manta and what led you to this project? Awesome. Yeah. Um, my name is Shumo Chu. I'm the co-founder of Manta Network. Uh, before Manta, I studied computer science, more specifically distributed systems and the formal method in, at University of Washington, uh, getting my PhD degrees and thinking, uh, see a great potential in Web3 space. And then um, kind of thinking the best way to know space is actually join company. Then I joined a cryptocurrency company called Algorand, uh-huh. uh, located in Boston, right? And there uh, I met many uh, wonderful colleagues. Oh, some of them uh, already appear in ZK podcasts, like Sergey, yeah, from totally. <laughs> yeah, and I think spend a wonderful one year there. My role there is basically developing the uh, Python DSL for the smart contract platforms. Right? Basically, I almost singly done the uh, Python DSL for the smart contract. And then uh, I kind of get back to academia, then uh, doing like a ZK uh, compiler and a ZK plus uh, machine learning research at uh, University of uh, California, Santa Barbara. And then um, decided to full-time at Menta to building the privacy layer for Web3. Cool. That's kind of a brief, yeah. <laughs> it's quite a journey. It does sound like Algorand has created a group of really kind of interesting research, cryptography-focused folks who've gone out to do other things. What was it about working there that you think kind of made for these entrepreneurial 
cryptographers to emerge? Uh, I think in general, I think uh, Algorand is uh, doing great in terms of curating people in text. I think a lot of times matters a lot, not only the company, but also like who you are hanging out with, right? So for example, uh, I know a lot of great uh, cryptographers and uh, also kind of on my side, I'm learning ZK uh, from my like Algorand days, right? So there are sometimes uh, I kind of just like run into Yorgos. Uh, one of the co-founder of uh, Acceler, he, he just saw me just like reading the papers about pairings, all these kind of things, right? So cool. I think basically at that time, uh, I get a sense of what is the cryptography, like how should we using the cryptographic lens of thinking things, and then kind of realize um, the power of uh, ZK. That kind of I have to say, like uh, it's I, I would never do this if I'm not joining Algorand and also like kind of hang out and then learn from a group of awesome people there. Cool. So. Were you working on any privacy on Algorand? Um, I didn't do anything particularly in privacy uh, because I do uh, have a kind of like academic programming language background. It does give me a way kind of um, like formalizing things and thinking things formally. My day job at Algorand is basically uh, building the smart contract language for them. Um, but my light job is actually study cryptography. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I actually wanted to ask you, Shumo, because I sort of, I assumed you're kind of a cryptographer, but actually, how would you define your skill set? Are you cryptography research? Are you applied cryptography? Are you more engineering? Uh, I think uh, uh, there is an analogy like you are like a, a fox and also a hedgehog, right? I'm kind of like more kind of like a fox person. I think I basically get a hand of everything of the technical development of Manta is doing. It's mostly in the intersection of uh, distributed system, uh, cryptography, and also like smart contract platform building, and also a little bit um, like operations and also uh, setting the strategic goals for the project, basically. Yeah. Who is the team today who's building Manta? Like, who are your peers? Like, how big is this company? I'm really curious. Um, yeah, so we have a team of awesome people. I think till today we have uh, 24 people and uh, mm, mostly our engineers. We have about like, a, mm, I maybe get the exact number wrong, uh, like 17 to 18 engineers. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically in different uh, like specialties, there is applied crypto and there is a, a runtime distributed systems. And there is a full stack slash um, like client software. And then there's DevOps. That's okay. overview. And uh, some of them are on Twitter, like uh, our CTO, Brendan, he's on Twitter. Please follow him. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, Shomai, it would be great if you can describe a bit the origin story of Menta, maybe even around the original paper of the anonymous swaps that uh, you folks released. Yeah, that's, that's great. So I think uh, when we start Manta, right, then we're thinking, what is a meaningful problem we're going to tackle uh, in the space, right? And privacy is one of the uh, most foundational problems. I think this is actually even like more today. But how can we tackle privacy problems? We have seen there's already some attacks on the privacy problems, for example, uh, like Zcash, like Monero, right? But then basically our view is, Mm, yes, Zcash is great. We have a huge respect for Zcash team. Um, the problem here is that uh, mm, this entire Web3 world kind of need more things. Uh, people not only need to uh, like transfer their balance privately, people want to uh, do DeFi, 
And one of yeah. the most uh, prominent um, usage is decentralized exchanges, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of the original vision of the Mancha. And then basically, mm, I kind of get back to the drawing board. And of course, the starting point of the study is actually try to really, really understand what the Zcash paper did, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. to see, hey, can we actually generalize that to actually adding a decentralized exchange scheme? And we find we could, and also... Uh, we can do decentralized exchange privately, and also we can um, making the LP token privately as well. That's kind of the origin of the paper. Yeah. Shoma, what was the original deployment target for Manta? Like when you were thinking about this decentralized exchanges, were you already thinking about you know Polkadot where it is today, or what were you thinking with then? I think at that time, basically, uh, like our requirement is pretty clear. So we want to have a relatively fast consensus so that uh, the performance is good, um, basically. And secondly, is have a relatively good runtime. And we want to have a high-performance virtual machines. And then by then, the uh, choices really like Cosmos and Polkadot, right? It's basically uh, 2020, like October-ish, we started the project. And we did a, basically a few evaluations, uh, like the pros and cons and Polkadot and Cosmos. And at the end of the day, like... Our team is just like full of Rust programmers. We just like to <laughs> program in Rust and really like the substrate. Uh, That's a good like, choice. Uh, sub- <laughs> sub- substrate blockchain frameworks. It's really like, I think uh, people in Parity did an amazing job to get a, like a blockchain deployment suit as a substrate, right? So that's basically uh, why we choose Polkadot. Do you want to share a little bit about the landscape almost like the Manta landscape in Polkadot? I want to sort of set the stage. Right. You have two different networks and Polkadot always has sort of the canary on Kusama and Polkadot. So maybe we can just sort of like map out a little bit. What does Manta actually look like right now in that Polkadot setup? Perfect. Yeah, that's a really great question. And maybe I can talk a little bit about uh, like uh, where the Manta's vision get a little bit more generalized than just uh, do a private payment and decentralized exchange, right? So the Polkadot has uh, this notion of a canary network People most know him, uh, like Kusama, as a canary network of Polkadot. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit history. Like Kusama used to be actually a, an incentivized testnet. Incentivized testnet, kind of. Although I feel like they always pushed back when you tried to call them an incentivized testnet. But yeah. Um, it's just like the origin when the Kusama just first uh, launched. It's unincentivized. It's not incentivized. Oh, unincentivized. So it used to have a token. For, yeah, it ah. actually have a faucet. It used to have a faucet. It's very interesting. Like, I, I guess the people get the faucet tokens are very happy right now. Wow. Um, really? Wait, when it first launched, there was a faucet? I actually didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, 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 wow. yeah. Wow. So, and then I think uh, basically people think it's a good idea. It's, the thing is, if the token doesn't have any, any economy values, um, it just gives a developer a different mental mode of deploying things. So basically, um, people think, hey, it's a good idea to have... Uh, Canary network is kind of expecting degree of chaos, and uh, and then that's Kusama. I think we're following the same similar principle as uh, like uh, Web three Foundation parity for the Polkadot, right? So basically, we have um, like a Kusama based network called Kanmari, and mm-hmm. we have uh, we're going to launch a Polkadot based network called Manta Network. Yeah, and uh, these share exactly the same code base and have the exact same set of features. And uh, it actually shares the same binary. Yeah. 
But calamari is sort of advanced. It's further along somehow, right? Like you've already deployed more things there. I mean, it's live yeah. and Manta isn't. Yeah, yeah. so we're basically the deployment sequence is that we deployed the features first in, we call it often testnet. It's actually mm-hmm. gone through several iterations of the testnet and then to uh, calamari and then to Manta. So Dolphin is like a private testnet that only you run on? Uh, Dolphin is a public testnet anyone can ah. try. It's oh, cool. um, actually working pretty well. Mm, the testnet v2, we already have more than uh, like a one, 150k transactions have more than uh, 20k active users in the testnet. I think mm, it's just a very uh, cool experience. You can actually see a uh, seamless private payment uh, experience on that. Uh, like highly recommend you guys try it. And it's actually just uh, go to Manta Network, then you can just click to try it. Yeah. I have one more question about the testnet. In a multi-chain, like in the parachain model where you have various parachains that have launched, they have their Canary version on Kusama. They will also have testnets. When you're deploying, like, is it the testnet that's actually somehow like playing with XCM to another network's testnet? And if so, yes. like what are they going through? Is there a testnet relay chain too? Yes, yes. There's an infrastructure okay. called the Rokuku that's kind of run by Parity. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think uh, there are some projects, their testnet don't join Rokuku, but we actually join Rokuku so that we can test uh, XCM messages with other teams. This cool. is actually our kind of daily workflow we have tested with the Moonbeam team, with Akala team, for example. Nice. I think later on, we're going to go a little deeper into like the status of the project. But before we did that, like, I think you had mentioned, you know, doing privacy, what role does a project like Manta have in this ecosystem? What kind of privacy could you bring? Yeah. What would be the use case that you could imagine? Um, I think there are several questions. Let me try to unpack them. Uh, first is that, uh, what is Manta's vision, right? I think the, basically our vision is trying to um, bring privacy to all the different kind of applications to the, in the Web3 space, right? Not limited to payment, decentralized exchange, and can elaborate a little bit more on like where the Manta project's going um, like in the following, right? But, mm. but this is basically our, our vision. And what is our current uh, product that is already launching Testnet? It's basically a shielded payment protocol that supports multiple assets in Polkadot and also, I guess, bridged asset to a Polkadot ecosystem. So basically, um, the role of the Mancha and Calamari is to be a privacy. Um, you can think of kind of like a privacy as a service for all the um, like Polkadot ecosystem parachains and also bridged asset on Polkadot. We basically can privatize any kind of asset and also all these assets are in the single shielded pool in the sense that uh, one, one feature we have is that uh, uh, we actually can shield the asset ID as well, which means all this kind of like a non-tail asset will enjoy same level of privacy as a mainstream asset in the shielded pool, right? So that's, that's the world we're currently are. And in the future, I'm happy to talk about that a little bit, we're actually um, launching um, like a native programmable layer for the smart contract. And this programmable layer will be uh, EVM equivalent. Interesting. So in a sense that it will be a composable uh, and also EVM uh, equivalent smart contract layer directly on the private asset. Nice. So 
this is kind of where your your philosophy diverges from the current, let's say, Zikash philosophy or Zikash focus, where their current focus is on a single asset, um, where you have, you know, transparent and shielded, but it's all like a single asset. I think there is no big effort in bridging anywhere. And you you actually chose to focus on that and also your your kind of touching on composability. So I guess what else would you consider that you diverged from Zcash? What are big differences that you have? I, I always tell the team using the land, right? I think uh, again, right? I think Zcash, those, those guys are doing great. I think Zcash is yeah. kind of like a Bitcoin, right? It like blaze the very trail. intact. Firstly, blaze the trail, and secondly, and I, like they have a amazing defensive depth for their protocol designs, right? So a lot of people like underappreciate that. Like they have a lot of defensive depths and we're yeah. kind of like a, we kind of, <laughs> we kind of uh, position ourselves more like a Ethereum, right? We want to support all the asset people love. We want to support all the activities people love in the Web3 space, like DeFi, FT, Metaverse, gaming, you name it, right? I think there is inherent need for all these spectrums of activities for the privacies so that, uh, um, uh, we're a little bit more adaptive and uh, try to bring, I think, I guess um, this is also related to our future reading that we're going to bring the programmability to the private assets as well. I mean, you can think of analogous to uh, kind of Ethereum brings uh, programmability to the cryptocurrencies and we're mm-hmm. bringing the programmabilities to private assets. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you want to talk a little bit about Manta Pay? And like, yeah. what is it? Because I think so far we've been talking primarily about Manta Network or like the mm-hmm. company or Calamari. But yeah, what is Manta right, Pay? Right. So Manta Pay basically is a first project we are launching. It's already live in testnet, has experienced two variants. And uh, the kind of uh, rough estimation is that it's going to be live in uh, Calamari next month. Okay. So, uh, we are uh, kind of doing the trusted setup code right now, and uh, we're going to do the trusted setup pretty soon. Cool. So, like from high level, um, it's basically a multi-asset shielded pool protocol. And uh, I guess from the feature side, right? So, support multi-asset, and you can mint your public asset to the private asset, and you can do a shielded transfer. We do have a kind of like a Zcash style a shielded address system, and uh, this shielded address system. Um, first, it's reusable, right? Like, for example, if you are, uh, for lack of a better word, hanger artist, you want to post your private uh, shielded address over the internet to receive some donations, you could, right? So it's a reusable public address. And also, each shielded address comes with a viewing keys in the sense that uh, uh, the viewing keys give you the viewing powers of history mm-hmm. so that you can do uh, selective disclosure and regulation compliance. For audits and stuff. And uh, without... Yeah, for audits and without giving uh, giving the spending power, I think that feature is quite useful for even your commercial settings. For example, you're running a DAO or running a company, you have a person in charge of spending, you do want the spending history kind of uh, auditable, right? So um, I think that's from feature level, what is a Manta Pay. And from the implementation level, we do like our amazing crypto team do spend a lot of time optimizing the speed, right? So actually, um, one of our kind of like a technical advantage here is that uh, we believe we have a very efficient, probably the most efficient Poseidon implementation in the industry in terms of the constraints. 
and uh, we have a very streamlined uh, protocol. So it only takes about like uh, 20K, um, like a RNCS constraint for the uh, ZKP circuit. Mm. And uh, this basically translates to a blazingly fast approval time. Our approval time is just like two seconds. Um, so uh, it's basically doesn't add any lag for your transaction people's day-to-day, like private transaction experiences. It's not bad. <laughs> I wait, before we go into the sort of details of this, is Mantapay a product? Like I just, I'm trying to figure out, is it an application that lives on top of the Manta network? Yeah, that's, a, that's also an excellent question. Thanks for asking this, right? So it can have different forms. So first, the Mantapay protocol is running on Manta networks, right? So you have to use the Manta network to have the private payment. But thanks to XCM, right? Basically support all the, Polkadot ecosystem perishing asset and bridge asset, right? So first layer. And second layer, from an end user point of view, like how I'm going to use MentaPay, right? So you could use our DAP, right? You mm-hmm. use the asset to our DAP and use that. Um, that's perfect. And uh, actually, we're also developing SDKs and also functionalities to other perishing DAPs. I'll give you an example. Like, so for example, if you are DAPing the Moonbeams, you just use our SDKs. Um, you can let your users to one click, um, like privatize your asset, right? So this is all thanks to the wonderful XCM cross-chain communication mechanism baked in, mm. in the Polkadot ecosystem. How does the SDK look like? Like what is the interface that uh, users are getting? So let's say Moonbeam developers, are they getting something like, I want to make a private transfer and then it automatically X uses XCM to go to the Manta network? Like, how does it work? Uh, so SDK in our current environment design, basically, let's say if you are DAP on Moonbeam and uh, you want to privatize your asset, you basically click the privatization. We provide the XCM encodings of what does a privatize mean. You can think of this is basically a streamline two things in, in the same XCM call. The first thing is that to transfer their tokens from uh, Moonbeam to Manta. And second is also feeding the zero-knowledge proof in the XM call as a message passing. And then on our side, we interpret that as a private datation and generate private tokens for the users. Mm, that's cool. Going back to Zcash, do you think that another privacy blockchain, maybe like Zcash or, I don't know, like Penumbra or something, could they ever lock into the Polkadot system and do anything like this? Or is it really like by being a parachain that you have that advantage of like actually being able to use XCM and it does something different than what they would be able to do? I think the question is which kind of advantages XCM brings us. So in principle, right, you can always do things like other, for example, like Zcash, Penendra, you mentioned. If there is a message passing bridge, to them, they could do the similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the advantage of the XCM is this cross-chain communication mechanism. First, it's baked in, right? So it's that uh, supported by relay chains, so have much better security guarantees. Basically, you don't have to worry about the uh, bridge security vulnerabilities. And secondly, right, it's very um, like a programmable, right? I think uh, Rob talked about uh, XCM here. Right. It's very programmable in the sense that uh, it's just like much easier for the parachain developers to do that. I think it's always possible to um, using bridges. Mm-hmm. Think about XCM. It's uh, basically a high security message passing and uh, 
has a certain level of programmability high performance spread baked in the Polkadot ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, it does give a little bit of advantages in, in this regard. Yeah. Do you see yourself, though, also using like other bridges for your privacy, like going outside of Polkadot? Yes, right. So then we support the tokens outside of the Polkadot ecosystem, right? If we want to support that in our kind of like Polkadot deployment, we want to do that. But uh, I think uh, we um, are like looking to uh, grow Manta to a multi-chain project in that sense, right? So because I think the inherent reason here is that uh, there are some security concerns over bridges, right? Also, at least uh, the current state of bridges, um, the things you can do is uh, still quite limited, not mm-hmm. as good as uh, native deployment, right? So um, we actually partnered with Acceler, um, like on the bridge deployment okay. on, on Polkadot ecosystem. Because you guys well. used to yeah. work together, Acceler, Sergey, um, or what? <laughs> yeah, we used to work together. And also, I think it's more about uh, we trust their engineering capabilities so you can make cool. things secure, right? So, yeah, yeah. You sort of mentioned this multi-asset shielded pool, and I might be thinking about something that's not related, but it sort of made me think a little about the work that Anoma does. I know that they often will mention this like multi-asset. Is it in any way related? They even have a project that's called MASP. Like oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very similar. So okay. it's kind of interesting. So uh, when we first uh, developed the ideas, I actually didn't know they exist. So the, the original MASP design is before Menta paper, but uh, I guess I just don't know the paper exists. Kind of uh, reinvented the well actually, and then once once we uh, actually uh, write the paper, oh, we say hey, like this, uh, like Zcash people actually did this like a multi asset shared pool. But the design, I would wouldn't bore you into the design. The design is a little bit different. Okay. But in general, in the high level, it's uh, it's very very similar. But is it similar to Zcash or Anoma? Was Zcash the first people to do it or? So this multi-asset shielded pool is originally designed by Zcash. Oh, And okay. then kind of Anoma forks that. Oh, okay. That's the history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I, I think Anoma, the Anoma guys are amazing. It's actually uh, properly credit that as well, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think in our, <laughs> in our case, we have no idea. When we first write the paper, we have no idea this thing exists. And after red paper, hey, we find this. Actually, we add reference of a multi-asset shared pool to the paper, <laughs> the second version of the paper when we revise paper. Um, yeah, but in general, it's a very, very good design in the sense that uh, I think it's the way to go if you want to have a multi-asset privacy in the sense that uh, mm, there are going to have some uh, like mainstream asset and long-tail asset, right? And then if you put that into a single pool, then this long-tail asset will have uh, the same level of privacy as this uh, mainstream asset. Okay. That's, that, that, that's, that's basically the, the design benefit you, you have for the um, multi-asset shielded pool. And I guess what you're saying here a little bit is, you know, when you think of a shielded pool, so far we do think of them as all having the same like asset type. And then like say there isn't very much liquidity in it, then you can often sort of spot things coming in and out of it. When you say long-tail, you're talking about like, things that have low liquidity, there'd only be like once in a while something put in or taken out. But wouldn't you still be able to see either side of that? Like, wouldn't you still be able to track that? Like, well, they're long tail. There's very little of it. Like, how could you not still that, reveal? That's a very, very good observation. So like putting in, getting out, right? This You still see the asset ID. There's no way you can hide that because one end of the pipe is public, 
but the the privacy benefit you get is basically for token transfer. Let's think of a multi-asset design that you actually disclose the asset. Then you actually know like what asset is being transferred if the asset ID is public, right? And let's say, Anna, you are the only one who have this very niche asset. And people can <laughs> directly support, hey, you're, you're transfer, right? So I think that's concrete benefit for the multi-asset uh, shielded pool have here. Yeah, I guess like as long as you keep your assets in the shielded pool for a long time, then you, you will be able to, to at least wait until other users join and you know, have more like of this asset. So um, don't go out too quick, I guess. Yeah. But in this case, is it also that within that uh, shielded pool, there's just like more stuff happening? Like, can you do more with it? Could you use it to do things? So therefore, like, yeah, it's maybe less about like the ownership of the asset, what you could do with it. That's another excellent question. Basically need to the future direction we're going. We want to basically have a general programmability for the private asset itself as it is without ever converting it back to the public asset. Um, we actually have a very good design here. Actually, um, well, uh, try to uh, get the uh, like uh, EVM testnet out for the private asset this year. But in general, we think that's could do and should do. And that's where, um, in, in our view, the privacy uh, like a Web3 project should uh, moving towards because I think it's really about a like user experience problem. Right. Mm. So I think it's great. We can privatize this asset and transfer to our friend and privatize that to public token, get some utilities. But in general, to be able to actually make privacy more mainstream and to protect more people's privacy, we just need to lower the entry barrier in the sense that uh, people can just use a private asset as they are using normal assets. Mm-hmm. And we think that's perfectly doable. And uh, then basically mm, the way you do it is that basically you give the private asset same utility as a public asset where, for example, you can like buy FTs, you can do DeFi, uh, you can use that in all the metaverse uh, applications, right? So mm, I guess one interesting thing we, we think here is that uh, let's imagine in the future Web3 world, basically our stance is that we think privacy it's not a good to have thing. It's actually a requirement. Mm-hmm. Mm. Let me give you several several concrete use cases, right? So of course uh, we, we we want privacy in DeFi because that's your like most important privacy part, the financial privacy. There are many many other use cases. Um, I think one use case, for example, is NFT, right? I think the current way the NFTs actually have a biggest privacy leakage in the sense that uh, I have my NFT as my PFP, I submit my address to Twitter to verify my PFP. That's a direct leakage mm-hmm. of your your personal identity with your on-chain address, right? So this leakage um, is just so huge, right? So think yeah. of you have a ZK-based private entity. You can still showing off, hey, I have this like wonderful NFTs. Then you just verify that using zero-knowledge proof, right? So you, you get all the functionalities, but um, you actually will have privacy. 
Yeah, there's actually two places where you could do that even. You could privately prove that you own like an NFT or something in a collection potentially to to get access to something. Or I think in your case, you're saying you would not know to which address that NFT actually belongs. Yeah, yeah. So you you, you can still, hey, this is my public profile, right? Then I Mm -hmm. I show that I, I own this NFT. But it doesn't necessarily have to link to to your Ethereum or like a Polkadot addresses, right? And uh, mm, just before we move next, allow me to show you an, another like uh, applications we, we have in mind, right? So for example, mm, like in the future of the decentralized organization like DAO, right? Very simple applications like payroll actually requires privacy. <laughs> kind of like any... Like yeah. organizations, I'm not happy. My colleague just earned like a uh, ten bucks more yeah. <laughs> more than me in a single <laughs> month, right? So I think uh, you can see, right? So basically, what envision in the future, like the the privacy is actually inherent need. If we are buying the thesis, this Web three space are going to be more important in people's daily lives. Then we think you need privacy from the first principle, right? That's, basically, that's where it comes what we're from. looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now I want to spend a bit of time diving a little bit more into the tech stack. And you had sort of mentioned a few things. You'd mentioned the Poseidon implementation that you did. I mean, did you take the work that had already been done and use it? Or did you do something to that? Like there had been sort of these, what was it, like hash competitions a few years ago where they were trying to find these like, do you remember this, Kobe? The snark-friendly hash function competition that was organized by... uh... Ethereum Foundation, I think. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Were you taking kind of the outcome of that Shumo and then putting it to work or were you doing something to it? Uh, so we're definitely kind of a standing on the uh, like a shoulder of giants. So there is a hashing competition and there is a Poseidon paper um, by like a Dimitri and many other great uh, cryptographers. And mm-hmm. also um, I think in our implementations, we actually look into a file cons, a Poseidon implementation called Neptune. It has a very, very good specs, right? So basically we look at all these both papers and implementations and then our own team make our own implementation using ArcWorks um, as uh, the backend. Um, I think one thing I want to say a little bit here is that uh, our team actually building our own like a ZK infrastructure called OpenZL. Um, so it's not really anything like super fancy, but... It's basically build a like intermediate representation layer, kind of a proof system agnostic. And this has been proven very, very helpful in our internal like R&D. The most reason is that uh, we think um, the most uh, circuit logic are kind of building in this open ZL we call eclair, these uh, like intermediate representations. And then it compiles to both, for example, ArcsWorks Core 16, it compiled to ZK Garage Plunk. In the future, it could compile to Nova, which is a new proof system, hmm. right? Because we see kind of this Moore's law, like trajectory of proof system, new and better proof system coming out all the time. And uh, we want to build a IR that can, using this proof system as a compilation target. And uh, partially, the our get back to the Poseidon implementation, right? Our Poseidon implementation, the high-level logic is actually implemented using our IR. And then we did a compilation to both uh, ZK Garage Plunk and also to uh, like ArcsWorks Gross 16 R1CS. Uh, mm. I think this uh, ArcsWorks R1CS uh, version of the Poseidon uh, is super, super efficient. Yeah. 
I feel like I'm hearing more and more projects like this or like ideas around this, these sort of intermediate compilers, whatever that role is sort of in between languages to be able to speak to different languages. Um, I mean, I've heard about it within maybe just like regular blockchain in the past, but now I'm hearing about it more and more in the ZK space. Like, would you put something like Circe kind of in that category? I think Circe is a great example of something similar. Like they were also thinking about uh, having these different backends, right? And supporting different proving systems and so on. I think uh, it's it's very interesting that you're working on it because it's not a small challenge, right? Like to translate um, something that is expressible using hashes, let's say, or um, I don't know, deriving nullifiers or whatever to both R1CS and Plonk in an efficient manner. It's, I think, something that is still like kind of an open problem. Oh, right? aha. I think uh, maybe I can talk a little bit more on that. By the way, this is not done by me. This is by, done by like our CTO, Brendan. Um, so I think in high level, you could do that. The way you do that is that uh, we get a lot of inspiration from LLVM, right? The thing yeah. you want to build is an extensible structure. So basically, our compilation toolchain has two layers. The first layer is the eclair. It's a proof system agnostic IR that describes the high-level logic. How, how does it look like? What would be the opcode? It's just there? a Rust. It's just a Rust. There's no opcode. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I mean, like, uh, in the Rust, do I write, like, um, this is A times B equals C, or do I write, like, I'm hashing using Shadow 56? Like, what do I write? Uh, so I think uh, it's, it's closer to letter, but we, we have a kind of a try to... Uh, maximizing the usage of a Rust generic, we have a notion of the mm. compiler. So in the sense that all this backend, whatever they support expressing the Rust, the trade interface, and then plug in as a like a generic argument as a compiler. That's why I mentioned LVM, right? It's really mm-hmm. extensible in, in the sense that we can be using this to staging different uh, like expressions of the computation logic at different layer. Right. So it's, I think to the first approximation, you can think of something like a Rust DDSL. We don't have a front end yet. Right. So uh, I think it's just like currently just like internal uh, purpose, but we, we do want to uh, make it open source. And uh, we actually applied for uh, like a Polkadot uh, ecosystem funding to make it public good. Uh, but get back to the technical design, right? Basically, there are two layers. The first layer is expressing the computation logic. The second layer is where the optimization comes through, right? The thing is, you do want to express proof system specific optimizations, right? This yeah, kind of, exactly. in our notion, we, we, we call it a compiler. Basically, you plug in this compiler and you express the proof system specific optimizations in the second stage in the sense that it's not completely agnostic, right? So basically, we write adapters for uh, RNCS for basically cross team based in RNCS and write adapters for Plunk, mm. right? So these adapters are actually not in generic level and can be application level adapters as well. Basically, that's the thing, right? So you could express Poseidon-specific optimizations in these adapters. That's why I kind of uh, bring the extensive design of LLVM here. If you're familiar with the LLVM, right, it's kind of like a building some like a extensions and backend of the LLVM. Um, so it actually helps the team a lot. The developer effort already pays off in the sense that we're kind of evaluating uh, whether we're using Plunk or using Gore 16, right? And uh, I th- after we benchmark, it showed like uh, overwhelmingly advantages to actually using Gore 16 
as a proof backend. And our team being able to basically switch the backend in like 1.5 hour from Plunk to Grok 16, for example, that's um, actually give us a lot of confidence to keep building this infrastructure. Yeah. Nice. So like this kind of um, app-specific optimization that you mentioned, I guess they could use things like custom gates or lookups and things of that sort. Yeah, exactly. For example, in the application-specific adapters for Plunk, uh, we actually uh, leverage like uh, higher-than-standard weights, customized gates in Plunk to have a more optimized Plunk implementation as well, for example. Mm. You just mentioned, actually, you used the term ZK Garage Plunk, which I don't know if our listeners are that familiar with ZK Garage, but I know you've been very, very involved in that effort. Do you want to just explain a little bit what that is? And actually, I want to know, is that a new name for Plonk, for a type of Plonk, ZK Garage Plonk? Because I hadn't heard it. Anyway, first explain ZK Garage, though. Um, ZK Garage is a community-driven effort to build a public good Plonk. There are several people involved. I wish I can take all the credit, but the truth is I'm just one of the, <laughs> I'm just one of the contributors. The effort okay. ma- majorly led by uh, Luke Pearson, one of the mm-hmm. uh, Polygen yeah. partners, and uh, also there are a lot of amazing people all over the places from projects like Ethereum Foundation, like Noma you just mentioned. I think uh, Kobe is kind of active in the, at least in the discussion. Guilty, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's a really nice common good plunk implementations. I think two of our team members, uh, Todd, our uh, cryptographic engineers, and also our CTO, Brandon, all, they all contribute to ZK Garage Plunk. And uh, I think also they did a at least quite a few educational tutorials for Plunk. Um, like, for example, one of our cryptographic engineer, Todd, he actually gave a, like a general ZK tutorial based on that. Cool. On the uh, line hack organized by Columbia students. Yeah. Nice. I think uh, it was another ZK podcast, perhaps, but... <laughs> I think you might be right. <laughs> I just briefly introduced the community effort here. Yeah. Cool, cool. And actually, I think I call it like ZK Garage because of my North American accent. But given that Luke is British, I believe, then it would be a ZK Garage, I think is more how he pronounces it. Am I right? Something like that. Anyway, maybe I'm doing it totally not justice and we should probably have him on the show to talk more about this at some point. Okay. Um, But so is that but is that now a type of plonk? You know, people have used the word plonk in various ways, but would that be almost like a standalone distinct plonk if it's a ZK Garage plonk? I I guess in some sense, we have like a few plonk implementations going around, right? Um, So you could have chosen any of those, like the Halo 2 one or now the Espresso one, let's say. Why ZK Garage? From our view, right? So we want to have uh, like uh, optimized plonk implementation first, right? So I think... uh, Basically, instead of using all these uh, like plunks, we do have some of our own ideas of actually how to do the plunk implementations. I think plunk is very kind of like a, like you said, it's a, it's a brother of many different things. Basically, there is a plunk original paper, and there are a few other papers adding things. For example, like a turbo plunk, uh, and then there is a paper called a plukup. Right, basically kind of doing the lookup in the Plunk side. The ultimate reason why using ZK Garage Plunk is that we see um, like a pure community-driven, uh, like independent projects that uh, have a long-term maintainabilities for going forward, 
that was at a stage we are kind of leaning towards using Plunk. And we also want basically our team to be part of the design and uh, also the implementation of the Plunk. I think our team still are very happy to contribute uh, to the, the ZK Guards Plunk today, even if uh, you know, our production moved from Plunk to Gross 16. Mm. I sort of want to f- go back one step back to that compiler role because um, I did wonder, since I am hearing about more and more projects trying to do this, like, would it not make sense for there to be a standardized version of that? Like, why is it good that everybody's kind of developing their own glue between these different pieces? Yeah, <laughs> this is the place where you put the XKCD comic where, you know, you have 14 standards, <laughs> so it's time to make a new standard. Yeah. Now you have 15. Well. I think there definitely is. It's just like, uh, I'm more like a practical person, right? So from the practical point of view, if you have a product shipment deadline, right, you do want to say, hey, like your team have a clear understanding of how things are going. In some sense, it's not that bad, right? So basically, like we have good communication with the Noma team about their mm-hmm. uh, IR. We basically learn from them. And the, the reason that we, we decided not using Vampire IR is that we have very, very different design goals. For example, the, the IR we're using is not Vampire IR. It has dramatically different design goals. We also talked to Firecon team. So they have a new language called Lark, right? So mm-hmm. you can think of that as a different language. Let me just briefly compare Vampire IR and uh, uh, the eclair mm-hmm. we're doing and the uh, Lark, right? Lark is a very high-level language. It's basically Lisp, right? It's great for like uh, people who actually doesn't understand anything about ZKP, right? But it actually misses, at least uh, in my view, some of no-level optimization opportunities, right? So mm-hmm. that's Lark. And Vampam IR is on the opposite, right? I think Vampam IR is a great like uh, intermediate representations, right? So, and we're actually thinking in the long term where potentially can compile our eclair mm-hmm. into Vampire. Mm. The eclair word design, we just like vaguely named IR. It's more like a library and the extensive framework that I just uh, talked talk about uh, several minutes ago, basically to allow you to freely express both high-level like semantics and low-level optimizations. For lack of a better word, it's more like a LLVM uh, framework rather than a dedicated IR, right? So you can see we are aware of the different development in the space. It's just like... Uh, currently, we don't have anything that we just can use to uh, fulfill our need seamlessly. That's why um, <laughs> we're building this uh, like eclair and mm. OpenZL, a, a library in general, basically. That's yeah. interesting. I mean, I'd sort of already mentioned Circe from Alex Ozdemir, which I guess falls in a similar category. I don't know if you are aware of it or if you've like talked to him about that. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But is that at a different place as well? Like where on that spectrum would you put it actually? Thursday is kind of in the similar to Vampire, okay. Vampire R, in, to some extent. But I, w- I wouldn't say the Thursday is the same as Vampire R as well, right? Because Thursday, they have, uh, you know, there is a thing called a SMT solver, right? Basically, you can think of it as a, like a buffed set solver, right? They, they have this kind of like a fancy solver-based uh, optimization design baked in Thursday as well, right? So um, it's a little bit more research mm-hmm oriented for Cersei. I'm not saying that it cannot be get, getting production. It's more a little bit like research oriented because they have potential to be having like a, a SMT solver, solver-based optimization baked in Cersei, right? Mm. So, but in terms of the spectrum, the closest thing to Cersei is actually the uh, Vampam IR that Anoma is building right now, basically. Got it. I know of at least one more project, but I think they might still be in stealth. But I do wonder, like, 
just general ZK DSLs, this map of how things are working together, do you also have to include the kind of individual project DSLs into that? Or is this kind of compiling living in a different part? Like it's almost the question here is like, would other languages also be interacting potentially with your IR, you're calling it, I guess, intermediate representation? Is that what that stands for? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a very, very good question. I can like elaborate a little bit more here. Um, basically, mm, we definitely could have a higher level like front end, right? So it's basically because uh, like our team of cryptographers, they are like a ZK expert, right? They are able to write these no level primitives and also to do dramatic optimization so that our ZK circuit is fast, right? I think we can definitely build in a higher level uh, abstractions on top of that. And also, for example, there are some front-end languages we can plug in, things like uh, Circum and Cairo, mm -hmm. for example, right? So this is definitely doable. And in terms of the language design point of view, I can only speak for myself. I kind of like Cairo a little bit better because it actually um, exposes the like a finite field as a raw element, the primitive data type at least allow you to having some expressivity of the optimizations in the higher level language, for example, compared with Circum. But in principle, right, all these things can be compiled, right? And uh, I see if there is not enough interest. And also, uh, again, like uh, our like IR stack will be Apache licensed as a, a public good project. We'll definitely welcome people to help us to actually build a higher level stack. But currently, our team will be focused on the infrastructure, the libraries, the backend to make it uh, uh, rock solid, right? So I think I definitely see the possibilities and we're also open to collaborations, basically. Yeah. Got it. Um, you just sort of mentioned Cairo, but everything we've been talking about is snarks. So do you have any like Stark or Fry, anything in your stack that sort of touches that? Um, so currently, we don't. Um, mostly for uh, efficiency reasons and also the proof size reasons, right? So I talk about Cairo because Cairo is a high-level language, okay. right? That's the beauty of abstractions. So you can compile Cairo to Snark. Oh, okay, there's, okay. there's nothing kind of like like 100 inherent, like Cairo, or some fragment of the Cairo, uh, like a high-level language design like Cairo, you can compile that to Snark. There's no inherent reason you cannot do so, right? So that's uh, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, I even heard about some projects that are trying to do that. So it is definitely doable and interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You sort of mentioned that you're doing a trusted setup, but I'm curious, like, you already have Calamari Live. Have you already done a trusted setup for that and you're making a new trusted setup for Manta Network deployed on Polkadot? Or like, yeah, what is the trusted setup for that you just described? So Manta and Calamari were using this exactly same ZK circuit. Okay. And the Calamari, we're doing the uh, like trusted setup either later this month or beginning next month for Calamari, ah, basically. But how does it run already? Like, what are you running then? Because it's live, but there's no trusted setup underneath the hood. You haven't done one yet, basically. So this is basically the um, like a modular and also the runtime upgrades. The current Calamari run as a kind of like a generic, like a parachain. It's joined the uh, Kusama networks but the Mari Pay hasn't been deployed to Calamari yet. So is it not private right now? So yeah, so the current uh, kind of Manta paper and the Mari Pay is going to be deployed on the um, Calamari sometime next month, right? So, but that's after the trusted setup, basically. Okay, yeah. so like the snark portion of Calamari is not 
deployed currently? It will come soon. Yeah. So, ah, okay. So the current Calamari, um, it has uh, its native tokens. It has a governance. We uh, already removed sudos. Um, basically, all the kind of like a shenanigans that getting a parachain up and running, all the DevOps, all the uh, decentralized validators there. Okay. Right? I see. I see. So in order to introduce the, let's say, the snark portion after the setup, you will have to do this kind of governance proposal to get that to happen. Right. So this is a runtime upgrade, goes through the governance proposals. Yeah. So I guess this is another thing that uh, kind of advantage in using a Polkadot and Substrate, right? So basically you, the runtime upgrade is part of the infrastructure so for, for, for many other chains, I know it's just a little bit of a headache to do the runtime upgrade, adding features, but here it's just like a daily standard practice. Mm. Can we touch on the general purpose privacy that you're planning for the future? Um, this kind of composability? Yeah, perfect. So yeah, like I said, right? So we basically, we have a bulletproof uh, private payment protocols already working. And the next step is getting programmability to these private assets. Uh, instead of talking that from tech point of view, maybe I should talk from what does this brings to developers and users, right? I guess the first is that to the developers, you can deploy your favorite Solidity-based smart contract into the platform, and this can directly manipulate the private asset in the sense that the private asset will be providing as uh, the same interface as the ERC-20, which for fungible tokens, and ERC-721 and ERC-1155, as for NFTs, and potentially many more as a composable interface. So the app developers, they don't have to learn ZK. They can just write a solidity dApp, and uh, uh, this dApp can uh, seamlessly working on the private asset. That's to the developers. And to the users, and you don't have to worry about that. As long as you are using the dApps are adopting this private asset, um, we actually spent quite some effort developing the wallet infrastructure to putting things, for example, putting the ZKP generator into a wallet like a Talisman, like a MetaMask, Snap, right? So you don't have to worry about that. You just use the private asset as if you are using public asset, right? So that's the end goal. And uh, we are actually pretty close to that, uh, to get these private, uh, like, uh, we're still calling the term right now, because it's a little bit confusing. It's not ZKEVM, because uh, ZKEVM actually doesn't have privacy. And also, we're not privatized the entire part of the EVM. If you guys have some ideas of what is the term here, um, we're happy to lessen. For lack of a better word, let's call it uh, this new, uh, like, a. Uh, uh, EVM design that support composable privacy is quite a known word, but that's basically the high-level goals we want mm. to we, we want to achieve here. And uh, I think nowadays it's uh, popular to say things like alpha leak. It's I think we're definitely um, <laughs> trying to disclose more information, including the design and how does things work, and uh, also how like when people can play with the test net in the following months mm. and. Uh, I guess keep an eye on us. Yeah, pretty excited. It's funny because I think a naming standard you could employ if you wanted to, like it used to be ZK rollup and then there was like ZK ZK rollup, which was like the private ZK rollup. But I know you said it's not exactly EVM, but like ZK ZK EVM maybe? I don't know. Um, I Maybe I've even heard that. <laughs> 
thanks, Anna. This is one of the candidates we are going to consider. <laughs> Maybe we'll we'll send you an NFT if that's uh, <laughs> a private NFT, though. Private yeah. only. Yeah, it's private. private NFT. Okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right, Shumo. Great. I want to say a big thank you to coming on the show, sharing with us Manta and its kind of journey to now and what you have planned. That was great talking to you. Thank you for doing so much work for the entire space. Yeah. Uh, cheers. I want to say thanks again, Kobe, for co-hosting with me. Happy to be here. Thank you, Kobe. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to say a big thank you to the ZK Podcast team, Tanya, Chris, Rachel, and our kind of guest editor for this particular episode, David. So thank you, David, for taking over from Henrik. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.